1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thanks for downloading the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. This episode features Chef Tom Colicchio of Craft, Hospitality, and Top Chef TV show. We're going to learn about Chef Tom's early life and climbing the ranks in the culinary world. Then it's my chance to pull back the curtains to one of my favorite TV shows and get some of my long-standing questions answered. Then we'll discuss Tom's love of fly fishing. This episode is brought to you by Traeger Grills, the most efficient way to cook animal. I made spicy Korean wings last night, two hours at 230 and then 10 minutes at 400. It's probably the best wings I've ever had. Let's hear more about Traeger Grills from Chef Chad Wells. We haven't heard from Chad since the Snakehead Tournament, so let's check in with him. Hi, this is Chef Chad Wells, Executive Chef of Walker's Tap and Table. What do I love most about my Traeger Pro 575? It's not only the most consistent and versatile grill on the market, but now it's easier than ever to grill on the go. With the Traeger Wi-Fi app, I can be cooking and then decide I want to go fishing. I can go hit the water and I can see everything that's going on on my grill from the temperature of my meat to the temperature of the grill. I can make changes all while I'm on the water from the palm of my hand with the Traeger Wi-Fi app. Dinner's ready. I simply pack the boat up, head home, and enjoy a wood-fired meal with friends and family. To see some of my wood-fired creations, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Chef Chad Wells. That's at Chef Chad Wells. And now the moment you've been waiting for, Rob's interview with Chef Tom Colicchio. All right, so we have with us Tom Colicchio, chef, owner of several restaurants, top chef, judge, and fly fisherman. So Thomas. Learn about where did you grow up? I know from the show you're a Jersey guy. 
Yeah, I grew up uh, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is kind of a, uh, I think, the third largest city in New Jersey. And uh, yeah, my, my dad was a correction officer in a county jail. My mom stayed at home until we were teenagers. And then she started working. Uh, she ran a, a school lunch program in a cafeteria in a public school. Is that your first introduction and, to uh, food? No, no, no. My, my, my parents both cooked at home. My mother was a good cook. She had her probably 20 dishes that she would rotate through. My dad would, you know, if he went out to dinner and saw something, he'd come home and try to experiment. So if he saw like a stuffed artichoke, he'd come home and try to recreate it. You know, food was always important growing up. I had to be at the dinner table 530 every night. Um, and holidays were, uh, holidays were, were, you know, usually revolved around food. Every Sunday we had, we called gravy, um, but it was, it was to, what most people know is tomato sauce. So it was sausage and meatballs and brajol and all cooked in a tomato sauce, uh, usually with some sort of, we didn't call it pasta then, we called it macaroni, <laughs> and usually a salad of sorts. And there was always uh, the immediate family and extended family as well that would come over. Uh, and this was every Sunday. How much of that then, was Italian-American influence versus also just living in Jersey? Italian-American. My, my, my parents were both Italian, both born here. My grandparents are my father's side came here and he was a young boy in 1903 i think he was two or three years old my grandparents on my mother's side were both born here um so uh but uh in my grandfather on my my, my mother's side he had a small boat and we would go crabbing and fishing and clamming in the barnegat bay in new jersey and i had two jobs uh one um was to keep him awake on the way home because uh, he would not off, and uh, and I had to sort of elbow him. And the second job, when I was about five or six, I was taught how to clean fish. And so my job was to gut, scale, fillet fish from a very young age. I had a knife in my hand, and uh, I'm not quite sure why they thought it was okay to put a knife in, a, in the hand of a six-year-old, but it kind of worked out. Um, those meals were crabs, and we, the way we cooked crabs, and, and I re- didn't realize it, this, I, I thought this was the only way you cook crab. Um, we would uh, boil it the way you normally boil crab with you know crabs in obey and, and water. And um, sometimes they would throw beer in. There was always that question of whether it was good to do with beer or not. Anyway, so then we would take the crabs when they came out, take the shell off, take out the gills or the dead man's fingers as they would call it, cook the crab in marinara sauce, and then. We would take the marinara sauce and put it over linguine, and then we would pick through the crab um, after it came out of the sauce. Um, and then if there were clams, they were just, just simply steamed with a lot of garlic and parsley and olive oil and wine. And if there were fish, it was usually bat, uh, dredged in crumbs and fried. But those feasts were, if we got you know a bushel or sometimes two bushels of crabs and a bushel or two of clams and some fish, we were, we were eating well. So that's kind of, uh, that was my life growing up. Did you of. also have the, is it the Feast of the Seven Fishes at Christmas time? Absolutely we did, yeah. Um, my, my grandparents, we started doing it, we'd go there. And um, I took it over. I started doing it um, when I was about 20, I guess. I started doing it. My grandparents got a little older and I started doing it. And when I moved out of the house, 
um, or when I first moved to New York, I started doing it and became a lot more elaborate, uh, just more dishes. Now we do it in, uh, in our house in Brooklyn. But yeah, we, we do we do about 13 or 14 different fish. We don't, wow. Why stop at seven? Yeah, <laughs> my goodness. Have you ever been to Mermaid Garden in Brooklyn? No, I know market. it. I, I know, I know of it. I haven't been. No, that's our old friend Bianca. We used to go to dead yeah. shows, and my brother used to scuba dive with her all around the world. Oh, cool. Yeah, small world. Yeah. Uh oh. The dead show. What was your first, what was your first dead show? I could, I could ask some questions. That was June twenty first, nineteen ninety, and they played Casey Jones for the first time since eighty four. Where was that? RFK. RFK. Yeah, I was. I think I was at one of those RFK shows um, back then. Yeah, I, I I don't remember when my first show was. To tell you the truth, I know when my first Hot Tuna show was. That was right after Zeppelin. It was my second concert, so it was nineteen seventy seven or seventy eight. The Capitol Theater in in uh, in New Jersey. In fact, it wasn't a Hot Tuna show. The Hot Tuna broke up for a short time, so it was a solo Yorma show. It was four hours acoustic, and it was wow. it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I was about 15 or 16. Yeah, that's how old I was at that first show. I think I was just finishing up freshman yeah. year of high school. My brother was allowed to go to dead shows much earlier than I was. Uh, and then they realized they were fine and safe and he was okay. So yeah. And they're like, you can go too. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. growing up, you moved to New York. Was that for culinary experience? Um, no, I, I moved. Um, I, I started working um right out of high school um even before high school i was cooking i was doing some shorter order work at a, a swim club i had a job at burger king <laughs> in fact i already had the job at the swim club doing shorter cook so i showed up they, they built a new burger king in town and i was like i'm the only kid here with experience like i'm getting this job but uh yeah then i started working around um my first job was in a seafood restaurant called evelyn seafood restaurant and that was in in elizabeth um, started working in a prep kitchen and eventually got up to the line, worked in the bakery for a while. Uh, I pretty much did every job in the place. I worked there for about a year and a half. And then from there, um, I went to a, a, a red sauce Italian place called um, Chestnut Tavern. It was in Union, New Jersey. It was a really, really busy place. Food was okay. We were doing red sauce Italian food. It was you know, pretty good. But I learned how to butcher there. We would get uh, six legs of veal a week. And... Um, uh, so I learned how to butcher uh, legs of veal. So that was a really good experience. And then from there, I ended up working at a uh, good new American restaurant. Well, I went to a place called uh, 40, I'm, not, I'm sorry, before 40 Main Street, the Old Mansion. It's run by these two recent culinary grads. Um, and uh, at that point, I was, I, was, I was hanging in there with them pretty well and, and um so, you know, got, got some experience there. And then I took a job at a, what was called a new, new American cuisine restaurant called 40 Main Street in Melbourne, New Jersey. And that was really cool because we were doing, um, you know, a menu, a new menus every day. So we would get together as chef, sous chef, myself, and just kind of brainstorm the menu and write a new menu every day. So that, that was really great. And then from there, I ended up doing a stint in a hotel and then, my first job in New York was at a restaurant called The Quilted Giraffe. So I was about 22, 23, I guess, about 22. And um, did really well there. But then the owner of 40 Main Street gave me a call out of the blue and said, the chef's leaving and do you want to come and take over the kitchen? And uh, so I had a buddy of mine that we were 
kind of kicking around the idea of doing a restaurant together. And he was the sous chef at 40 Main Street when I was first there. So he and I went back together as co-chefs. And that worked out really well. We, you know, got, got some, you know, good reviews. And, um, but that kind of was short-lived. And then I ended up back in New York working at Gotham and then did some time in France and then came back and worked for Thomas Keller at Raquel. I was a sous chef. God, how to be... He just celebrated his 25th anniversary at French Laundry. This had to be 35 years ago. Wow. So when we were supposed to have gotten together in Manhattan a couple of weeks ago, this is when my wife, she was going to sit in on the podcast. This is when her questions were going to start. She's the restaurant foodie in the family. So was that when you were introduced to really fresh, modern cuisine ingredients being in California? No, no. This wasn't in California. This was this was in New York. So oh. we had a restaurant called Raquel. It was... Um, on the corner of uh, Clarkson and Carmine. There's actually four corners over there. They call it Clarkson, Carmine, 7th Avenue South, and uh, what else did that run into? It's, anyway, so yeah, it was, it was kind of cool. He did it with a, a partner with a guy named Serge Raoul, who had Raoul, so it's been there for 50 years now. The food was really great, but it was this crazy scene because Serge wanted this bar scene, and there was a big, long bar. And Thomas wanted a serious restaurant on the other side, and the waiters didn't know sort of which way to turn. And we were doing some some amazing food. Um, you know, the cool thing about about what Thomas did, the way he ran his kitchen, and I don't, I don't think too many people really talk about this. Um, you know, there's an intensity that that he works, and people know about that. And obviously, you know, the ingredients that he buys are all top notch, and he really drives his staff and gets the most out of people. But one thing that he did that that I don't think too many people talk about it, is, is how inclusive he was when it came to working through the menu. Every day he would say, there's a bunch of stuff downstairs that just came in. This is what's there. What do you want to do? And we all sit around the stove and as we were prepping and just threw out ideas. And I would say, well, I'll take the crab and I'll take some fluke came in. I'll take that and we'll do kind of like a, uh, we'll dredge the fluke in, uh, you know, light breadcrumbs and I'll make a little, um, sort of ragu with a crab and lots of herbs and butter and um, kind of make a, like a, a little Napoleon of that. And so he would just say, okay. And then he would say, well, that sounds great, but I want you to add X, Y, and Z. And then maybe somebody else would have a suggestion. And before you knew it, you had a dish. And this happened every single day, you know, with probably three or four dishes. And then sometimes those dishes we would kind of work through and sometimes they end up on a menu and, it was just this really, and, and, you know, but it was funny because I started to re resent it a little bit because, like, I work on a dish and I end up on a menu, and it was, like, on his menu. And it wasn't until I had my own kitchen where I realized that even though I thought I was coming up with this dish, it was his system, it was his kitchen. He would only allow me to do it because he was kind of guiding the whole, the whole process. And it was just really, really just, just cool time for, for me to cook because everything was just really wide open and... I mean, I remember the first time where, and looking back on now, it kind of it, it's kind of passe, but where we we were taking beet juice and it was highly reduced beet juice, and he did this lobster dish with leeks and beets, and one day just just you know it kind of got splattered on a plate, and he was like, I kind of like that, and then it became like, lift up the spoon, like you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, two feet off the plate and let it splatter. And then it became put the plate on a, on a, on a milk crate and get up on, on another milk crate and let it splatter from 10 feet and see what happens. So it was just highly experimental. You know, I remember one day having a VIP in, and he's like, oh, let's do some foie gras. I was like, okay. And I took the entire loaf of foie gras. I was like, I'm going to roast it whole. And he's like, 
really? I'm like, yeah. He goes, it better work. <laughs> I said, I think it will. And it did. And it was like, came this you know, cool thing that we did for VIPs. And it ended up on the menu as a whole lobe of foie gras. I do like um, foie gras. Um, but, uh, like, so it was this highly experimental, fun time. Um, but, uh, you know, that restaurant, it, it didn't work out. I, I left um, about a year into it and uh, decided I wanted to go to France and work a little bit. I came back and, and eventually took a chef's job at a restaurant called um, Mondrian, which was my first chef's job in New York. How long were you an executive? Were you executive chef? Uh, yeah, I started there as um, um, I, I started there as a um, the sous chef, and then I left. What happened is is um, this was uh, God, how long ago? Uh, I was in my twenties. I think it was about twenty five, and um, I was planning on going to France to work for six months, and. The guy who, one of the, the, the chef owner of the restaurant, a guy named Dennis Foy, had called me and we, we had met. And, you know, someone suggested that he, he'd bring me in to be the sous chef or to be the chef of cuisine in this new restaurant he was doing in New York. And I didn't want to do it. I knew Dennis. I liked him fine, but I wasn't really interested in being a sous chef. And my dad was diagnosed with cancer, in lung cancer, stage four lung cancer. So at that point, I decided to, I couldn't travel to France. I had to stay home. And I took, I took the job. And I was there for about two months when my father passed away. And I wasn't crazy about the job. I wasn't crazy about what we were doing there. And so when I came back after, you know, I took about a month off and came back to work. I was there for a couple of weeks. And I decided I'm done. I'm going to France. And I was in France. I was working for a chef named Michel Bra. And I was there for about two, three months. And I get a phone call from the actual owner of the restaurant saying, you know, can you come back? We're having problems. And um, so I came back and I came back as the chef. Dennis left. And so that was my first my first chef's job in New York. Um, I took it over and in about six months time, we got a three star review from the New York Times. And that kind of put me on the map. And then from there to Gramercy? Uh, yeah, I was, I was there. Uh, I was a chef there for about three four years you know one best new chef food and wine magazine and a bunch of other stuff and it was at food and wine in aston that i met um, danny meyer this was 1991 danny chef michael romano at union square cafe also got best chef for food and wine magazine that year they, they usually nominate 10 chefs a year and so i met danny and we kind of hit it off and the following year i went back to food and wine aspen um danny you know come to the restaurant you know you've been in a couple times a lot of managers from Union Square Cafe had come in. So I knew he liked the restaurant. I liked what he was doing. And so the following year, food and wine, so I guess it's June, July, I guess June. And I said, listen, you know, when I get back to New York, I want to give you a call. He said, okay. So I called him and said, listen, we're closing Mondrian. And he said, why are you telling me? I said, well, I think you like what I do. I like what you do. And maybe we should talk about doing a restaurant together. And he first, he said, um, no, I have no desire to do a second restaurant. I was like, okay. And I had a partner. We started looking for a space. And Danny called back and said, you know what? Let's explore this. And so what we did is we, we met a few times and talked. And then we decided to take a trip together. So we, we, we took a trip to Italy together. And we spent about 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, we had the idea for Grand Rochie Tavern sort of sketched out on the back of a napkin. 
you know, most of the time, most of the time, we didn't spend really talking about food or, or service or anything. We really talked about the kind of business we wanted to run, the kind of what we thought was missing from from the sort of restaurant industry and how we can change it. And um, and so, you know, two years later, Gramercy opened. So this was about '94. Every time we'd walk yeah. through that area, I would in the early 2000s, I'd tell my wife, there, "There's the restaurant is right around here, Gramercy yeah. Park." Every time we walked through, I'd mention it. Yeah, so actually I'm going back on Sunday. Uh, Gramercy is celebrating its 25th anniversary as well. And, and there's a party Sunday night for only for current and past employees. Uh, it's probably about 400 people. Um, so I'm going and my, my wife and I are going. I met my wife there. Um, so we're, we're going together and uh, it should be fun. And um, she's been supportive of the whole culinary career and all yeah. the, the busyness that comes with the restaurant group yeah yeah she she i mean listen before i had young children i have a 26 year old and from a different uh different mom is he the the one you uh, referred to as the mixologist on last season of yes. Chef with the, yes, yes, the sigh yes. and the eye roll yes no 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 it wasn't, it wasn't i i think the eye roll see they take <laughs> they actually cut eye rolls in sometimes uh no it's i i love it but he's he's back in school now and he's actually going to school for food policy and he's a uh, tending bar and enjoys it and uh, I'm pretty cool with it. Um, I think the eye roll was word mixologist. I, I don't think it was aimed at my son. Okay. It, was, it was aimed at the word mixologist. Right. Um, but um, anyway, um, so no, so so with, with little guys now, I mean, I'm much further along in my career and I'm not spending you know, I'm not in my restaurants until one o'clock at night. Usually seven, eight o'clock, I'm done. I'm home. Um, so uh, it's not the crazy schedule it used to be. Um, you know, when I'm away shooting, I'm gone for five five weeks at a time. You know, we that's once a year. So, um, but no, I don't. I don't work the. I don't, I don't do the eighty hours a week like I used to. I'm I'm too old for that. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> that's more time for fishing yeah. now. Well, I wish I had more time fishing. I'm trying, you know. I was going to go out today, but I'm on this podcast, so I'm not, right. I'm not on the boat. I was, I was going to do it on the boat, but then I decided. Yeah. Um, you know what I did? I was actually going to go fishing this morning, and I, I took out some of my rods and started looking at them, and I noticed they were getting kind of getting beat up. So I spent the last two hours cleaning my, my tackle. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I've got some corks that need a good scrubbing right now that are a little yeah. That's what I did. I spent a lot of time. Um, uh, I had a pretty good offshore trip uh, last week, so I, I had a, you know, finally got around to cleaning stuff up. But um, but yeah, no, I, I I try to I try to get. I don't I don't fish nearly as much as I used. To. I used to get out about sixty days a year. Um, you know, between winter trips or fall spring trips to the Bahamas and Key West and and fishing locally. Um, uh, mostly for, you know, back then was mostly sight fishing for stripers. Um, and, but lately I started spending more time offshore. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's a great tuna bite happening right now. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, if, I think if I get out 30 times a year, that's a lot now. I guess it's still good, pretty good. But. Yeah. I'm going out today to scout a spot for a group of, six-year-olds for a birthday party oh nice yeah so i'm gonna do a little fishing see if i can just get some itty bitty bluegill that'll make them happy that's gonna be chaos so it's lake, lake fishing yeah there's a little man-made lake 
near Old Town Alexandria that was just rebuilt. They'll stock okay. that with trout, and it's got some catfish and carp. Oh, cool. Good. Yeah. Um, all right, I have some culinary questions now. Sure. Why are salt and pepper the main seasoning ingredients or agents? Because because food on its own is inherently really good, um, uh, and and salt brings out the flavor of everything. Um, it intensifies the flavor of everything. Um, pepper, I think, just kind of rounds everything out a little bit. So that's it. I mean, you can add all the vinegar, herbs, you know, whatever. But if you don't have salt, it's just going to taste, everything is going to taste bland. My parents don't cook with salt anymore. I don't know if it's because they're aging, but we will sneak our own seasonings and my wife will bring hot sauce to their house. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, yeah, the hot sauce kind of works. The hot sauce has you know, a good amount of salt in it. What is the deal with cilantro? Why is that so prevalent? Now, I kind of blame Bobby Flay because I'd never seen cilantro until he came on the Food Network in the 90s. I think there are a lot of Mexican cooks cooking with cilantro for, for many, many years. Um, um, no, it's, it's, I, I, I like it. I use it a lot, especially um, I'm out in Long Island right now. Um, I have a garden out here. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I cook pretty much every night. And cilantro finds its way into pretty much every raw fish preparation. It also works well with meat. You know, if you're doing like a hanger steak and um, – yeah, you know, I, I like to I like to use a lot of fresh herbs this time of year, and cilantro always kind of works for me. I did a big it was a, a party across the street, so I brought a big poke from you know with tuna, and you know chilies and cilantro and garlic and lime juice. Just it's kind of magic together. It all works. Yeah, I, um, I can't do it. Just hearing the word cilantro. Well, you know why? Makes me you know why? No, genetically, some people just just can't eat cilantro that's, i can't that's smell it yeah yep. i'm on the facebook page i hate cilantro and yeah, they're that, always that, ragging on trader joe's because everything has cilantro there. so when we're done google genetics and 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 cilantro and see what comes up yeah. you'll smells, see that like genetically you're, you are you are predisposed to not like cilantro and we yep. went to a place in columbus ohio last week that has alton brown's favorite salsa and straight up it was all cilantro and yeah. I just sat there and drank margaritas and didn't eat anything. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's that. You'll never, you'll never, no matter what you do, you're not going to like it. Yeah. One of those things. Uh, yeah. What is your favorite source of umami? Right now, I'm 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 leaning towards you know more fermented stuff, um, especially uh, Calabrian chilies because besides being spicy, it's also fermented. I think that gives a good shot. I mean, I've always been a fan of mushrooms. Um, uh, so doing things like taking portobello mushrooms, if you just roast them in the oven, they'll throw off a lot of a lot of liquid. Taking that liquid down and reducing it is another great source of umami. Anchovy, anchovy paste, I think, is also a really great source. So, um, uh, it's kind of what I'm turning to these days. Do you have a favorite seasonal ingredient? Um, probably morels. Our ramps. I've Together, never been able to find great. either of them. Really? 
Yeah, I, I read um, the, the Landon Cook book. Landon Cook is his name. His book on foraging. Uh, he said you go find places that have been burnt out and forest fires, yeah. and you'll find them all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Dead. Usually more more out west, but my neighbor found a bunch of morels this, this year right across the street from me um, around a dead, dead tree. So they're there. I mean, ramps, I had a patch I used to I used to dig um, in New Jersey um, that I found. Um, but uh, they're, they're around. Um, I, I think you, you got to just, uh, you know, spend some time in the woods and you'll find them. My cousin, Ari, one of his restaurants, Gibellina, he does a ramp pizza in the spring. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah, ramp, ramp has become, you know, the, the big spring thing. I remember back when I was at Quilted Giraffe, um, we were using them. And it was kind of before they were really popular. It was really, it's really funny to watch how, how popular they've become. Um, but I think there's been a problem with the, the way they're being harvested. If you yank them out of the ground, they won't grow back. You have to cut them out. And so too many people are just harvesting and pulling them out of the ground. It's becoming a problem because we're, we're killing them off. And I know uh, people have their secret have patches. Popular. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dark, just like they're the they're just like the fungus foragers, people have their ramp spots that are top secret. Yep, yep. The forage farm. I mean, I love the stories of those guys out in the Pacific Northwest where the, like they'll uh, they'll they'll sort of fend people off with shotguns. Yeah, <laughs> it gets real out there. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. Is there a culinary myth that people believe that has been debunked years ago? Like adding olive oil to cooking pasta, maybe or oh, don't 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 do that. That that's the please don't do that. That's a terrible idea. The reason being is that most people they 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 don't do. There's one thing that you should do with pasta that most people just don't do, and that is whatever sauce you're using, especially if it's like a tomato-based sauce, you have to finish the pasta in that sauce. So you have to save some of that pasta water. You take the pasta out. You drain it. You put it into a, a pot. You put the sauce on, and you let it cook. It's called—I don't know the Italian word for it—but you stain the pasta. You want the pasta to absorb and finish cooking in that sauce. If you cook the pasta in oil, it puts a coat of oil on the sauce, and the pasta can't absorb that sauce. That's like a really, really bad idea. Um, it won't stick together if you drain it immediately and don't wash the starch off it, but immediately get it into the pot with with sauce. See, I think I think too often in too many Italian red sauce places, they took the pasta, put it on a plate, and just ladled tomato sauce over the top of it, which is also something you really shouldn't do. Um, but then the pasta would stick together because you didn't mix it fast enough. But if you mix it fast enough with the sauce, you don't have that problem. So that's something I would never, never, I never do. And people still do it. I still have to, you know, every now and then, you know, even in my kitchen, if there's a, a crowd of people at home and People are cooking. They're like, "Oh, should I put oil in the, in the water?" No, don't, don't ever do that. What about MSG? MSG, you know, it's one of those things where it's actually. I grew up eating MSG. It was called Accent. My mother always had it in the house. The little sugar bottle. It was like bottle. this newfangled thing back in. It was yes, exactly. It was a newfangled thing back in the sixties. Accent. And I remember the first Italian restaurant I worked in. They used Accent as well. It actually works, and. You know, it, it it is another source of umami, um, and uh, you know, there's 
I, I don't have it at home, but I, I, I should actually start using it because it actually um, it does add a flavor that you're not going to get out of salt. And it's a type of salt, um, but it just adds more of an umami flavor. And um, I think the, the headaches that people would say they get, I think that's been debunked as well. Yeah, we've got it upstairs. I'll use it. I'm making Sikh kebabs tonight on my smoker. There you so go. I'll be putting some of that in. Get the accent out. Yeah. Uh, what's <laughs> like your it. favorite culinary gadget? Uh, a sharp knife. I don't. I don't. I'm not big on gadgets. Um, you know. It's yeah, like a fly I, shop. I There's a gadget for everything in a fly shop, just like you oh, find yeah. in Williams Sonoma. And I don't use them. Because <laughs> they're gadgets, you don't need them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my, my, my when I go trout fishing, my goal I go out as late as possible. Like I want a few flies, you know. And, you know, obviously, you need a, a you know, you need a good amount of flies because you don't know what's going to hatch and, and what stage it's going to be. Uh, yeah, all that's great. So yes, you need flies, but you know, a couple spools of tippet, some you know, shakily stuff to you know to, to make the flies point, maybe a pair. Forceps, that's it. What else do you need? I mean, I, you know, I just got to go out and all stuff around their neck and, like, and yeah, tons just of stuff. Weigh yourself down. All right, man. Have fun with that. Yeah. <laughs> Are you okay yeah. with people taking pictures of their food? Yeah, whatever. If that's if that's what they want to do, just don't complain. It's cold. Is the <laughs> changing climate affecting restaurants in what you're able to grow and procure and prices? Um, not, not yet, but I think, I think it's something we're going to have to struggle with. Um, I, I, I think, I think the first indication is going to be seafood. Um, I know right now out in Long Island, there used to be a pretty robust lobster fishery here. My neighbor used to be a lobster fisherman. Not anymore. There are no more lobsters in the bay, in the sound. They're all, they're all gone. Even now, Maine lobsters are moving out of Maine and moving further up into Canada. Um, Sea bass, black sea bass that used to be predominantly um, Virginia, um, Carolina fish, now very, you know, tons of it up here. We're seeing more and more white marlin up here. Um, so um, I've, I've heard recent reports of tarpon on the flats in, in you know, in, in the bay, um, uh, in Gardner's Bay. So there's, there's some wacky stuff happening. But I think what's going to happen is a lot of fishing communities are all, especially communities like in the Maldives and places like that, they're really low-lying. All these fish communities are, are at sea level. And they're the first communities that are going to disappear. And with that, lifestyle is disappearing. I mean, these are communities that fed themselves through the oceans and through the water and through fishing. And, and these communities are going to disappear. Um, and, you know, we're going to, we're, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not... You know, the thing is, it's it's happening over a period of time. It's not going to happen all at once, and so it's like putting it's like putting the, the, the frog in the cold water and turning up the heat. He has no idea. He's like you know, he's he's he falls asleep before he dies, and that's kind of what's happening right now. This is happening very very slowly, and we don't even realize it. And, and so, no, it hasn't affected prices yet, but you know, I suspect on a larger scale, it's going to. If you look at at the floods. Um, in the Midwest this season where they didn't get crops in the ground. Soy wasn't planted. Corn wasn't planted. So I think those commodity prices are going to be affected. Um, 
which is going to sort of force the prices of everything up. But um, so I don't, you know, we're not we're not seeing it right now, but it's it's going to happen soon. Yeah, with the floods we had on Monday morning, twenty or thirty minute storm in DC that dropped three and a half billion gallons yeah. of water. Yeah, and we're getting another one today. Yeah, did you see we're, we're supposed to get thunderstorms later on tonight. Did you see a storm in Louisiana? Ten to the rain. I know they're getting. Yeah, the it might turn into a hurricane and then move up to the Midwest as a well, tropical no, that, depression. That was, right, the, that was a storm. That was a storm. Not this wasn't. Oh, that's before associated uh, with, with the tropical storm. That's this why the levees are at, at one foot to go before they spill over. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking. They're talking mostly uh, looking at probably a category one, but it looks like it's going to dump a ton of rain. So yeah, there's the you know, this is what I, I don't I don't think that the average person sort of understands what's going on, especially people who have decided for political reasons to put their head in the sand. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's not where all of a sudden everywhere it's going to be hot, but it's like June. June was the hottest month, hottest month on record. Now, if you were in New York, you'd say, was that hot? Europe, it was 114 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, people just kind of look at where they are and go, oh, weather's fine. It's no big deal. And you go to parts of this world, you can't, you can't even go outside anymore. There's parts of Australia where it's, you know, 120 degrees. And so this year will be the, not, I mean, the prior quarter is the hottest, the hottest year ever, just like the year before was and the year before that was. And, you know, it, it's happening. And, you know, the one thing I, I just wish, like, there's some simple solutions to do, and there's some trying to get rid of carbon using less carbon-based fuel. That's going to take time and effort, and it's going to change the economy, and that's all hard stuff that people don't want to do. But, God, if we just decide to go out there and plant a bunch of trees, <laughs> I read a report recently that said that's one of the biggest things that we could do is just get more trees planted. Because right now we're also, you know, as, as we're, we're burning more carbon, we're also cutting down more forests, you know, especially in South America for palm oil. And, and so we can mitigate a lot of this carbon by just planting more trees. You know, we can mitigate a lot of this carbon by, by planting cover crops um, because co those cover crops, crops, they sequester carbon in the soil where, you know, our, our, our soil used to hold, you know, 12% carbon. Now it's holding about 4% carbon just because of the way we're farming on a large scale. And so there's a lot of stuff that we can do that are pretty simple that don't, um, th that don't include, you know, changing from a, a fossil-based, uh, you know, fuel to more renewables. That should happen too, but there's other things that we can do that don't threaten that. And, um, you know, it, it's, you know, it's not that far away. You know, my children are eight and nine, you know, talking 2050. Is, is is not that far away it, it could be in my lifetime but it's definitely in their lifetime absolutely and uh you know and and what if, if you think right now we're looking at you know right now if you look at the amount of displaced people it's because of war um some famine right now what's going to happen when people are displaced on the coast everywhere we're going to see migration patterns that are just going to devastate most countries that we're kind of not even focused on that right now the 6,000 people that come up you know to to our um our border our, our southern border and we think that's you know a big deal 
hundreds of millions of people are going to be displaced. Right. How long do they go before New York City is going to be underwater? Well, New York City, what they'll do is is they'll spend a ton of money and they'll they'll create a system of dikes and levees and stuff around New York City and think that's going to be a solution that'll last until it's a big storm and floods everything (laughs) and then we're in trouble. So, but yeah, again, yeah, it's 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 low lying. It's it's there's going to be problems if these other it's. It gets the other communities in in South America in in the Indian Ocean, um, you know, Indonesia, that not going to be able to build dikes and levee systems. They're just going to have to move move everyone inland. Yeah, I tell people, you know, if you want to buy beachfront property now, get something uh, ten blocks in. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You mentioned but, palm oil. Uh, are there are there things that cooks ethically should avoid due to environmental reasons? Well, I think for looking at fish, I think we should make sure that, that fish are ethically sourced, that, that they're, 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 we're using fish that are fish sustainably, um, um, a, a good um, a good uh, resource for that is the uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium. Uh, they have a great website. They can tell you where fish are under pressure. Right now, something like 90% of our stocks are other completely depleted are on the verge of collapsing, ninety um, percent. So we just need, you know, we figure out how to how to you know control the oceans um, in terms of where we're collecting, uh, fishing and, and how we're fishing and, and what we're fishing for. And at a certain point, we just need to be more responsible. Um, and uh, it's not a it's 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 not a uh, a finite resource, and we're treating it that way. It seems that the seafood that we eat now is the stuff that. 200 years ago, nobody would have eaten. And what they were eating was what nobody would have eaten 200 years before that. It's just, it's all good stuff was all eaten. And then the next generation gets whatever was considered trash. And then someone figures out, well, we got to eat that because there's nothing left. And now we're running into reading stuff that nobody would have eaten hundreds of years ago. And we're depleting all that too. Yeah. I, 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 I think a hundred years ago, they're probably, eating tuna and swordfish it's just that we've gotten you know boats that we've got we've know how to target them yeah spotter planes radar yeah yeah and boats that can go out for much longer you know periods of time i mean they're they're fishing boats that don't don't come to port they just stay out there they drop off fish and they're back out there and then, then with that also comes uh slavery there's there's people that are literally slaves on these fishing ships so we're you know this is this is something where Someone needs to take leadership of this. It's not, it's the one country can't do it. Um, and we import 90% of our seafood. Um, and we probably export a ton of, of seafood as well. We export it because it's cheaper for somebody else to process it. Um, and then we end up buying it back processed in the form of fish sticks, which is probably ridiculous, but that's kind of what we do. Um, but um, we need the, you know, a, a, leadership in a bunch of countries, developed countries that can work with developing countries to sort of put restrictions on how we fish, what we're fishing for, or or we're going to completely deplete the oceans. Um, It's going to happen soon. I'm currently reading Paul Greenberg, uh, Omega Principle, and he's saying how we're taking all of these super healthy sardines out of Peru by the tons chopping them up, grinding them down, then making fish food to feed things that are farm-raised, which are just gross, non-nutritious farm-raised food. And if we just ate 
the sardines to begin with, we would all be much healthier. Yeah, this is this is true. And and yet I still think that farming, but not the way we're farming now, could be beneficial because it could be a cheap source of protein. I would prefer to see it happen inland as opposed to in the oceans. And I think that we need to come up with a, a, a source other than forage fish to feed them. Um, I'm working with an organization called our company called KDC Ag, and we're actually taking grocery waste. Uh, so bakery waste, fish, meat, um, uh, poultry, um, uh, um, produce, and um, digesting it and turning it into pelletized food. It can be used to feed chickens, pigs, and also fish. <clears throat> so that's a way to take a waste stream, keep it out of um, landfills where it's producing methane, turn it into something that can then in turn feed fish and animals. I wish um, they so- would do that at my daughter's elementary school. The amount of food waste that goes on there, it's – and that's just yeah. the second smallest school in the county. Yeah. It's like 10 trash cans a day of food waste. Yeah, well, it it can it can be reclaimed and, and, and kept. Listen, it can be turned to compost. You turn it to compost, at least it's kept out of out of you know landfills and turned to methane. But it's something that um, this this company's been working on. It it, it made great progress. And and um, but there there are alternative methods and and there's technologies that can sort of sort of transform that that waste into feed and then in turn feed humans um, and. But, but, you know, Paul's right. The, the idea that we're, we're pillaging the ocean to make fish fish food from forage fish to feed farm fish is just is just crazy. And it's, it's, all, it's happening on a large scale to feed tuna. Um, I was in Australia a couple of years back and um, visited a tuna farm. What they do is they, they put a, a, a per se net around a school of young juvenile tuna they very, very slowly take that net and bring those fish inshore. Then they're put in pens and they're fed sardines and other forage fish until they're, you know, 300 pounds and then they just, and they, they kill them. And then they end up on, you know, on, on a plate. But it's tons and tons of forage fish that they're feeding these, 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 these tuna. And I don't see how it's not sustainable. Right. Um, so anyway. What is your favorite fish to catch and eat? Eat right now. Black sea bass, um, and we've done a pretty good job with that as well as far as uh, um, uh, being a sustainable source of fish. But I think it's the best fish that we have on the East Coast. Do you do pumpkin spice in the fall? Are you a pumpkin, pumpkin spice, spice guy? What's that? You like pumpkin spice Cheerios, pumpkin spice lattes? No, 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 okay. no. God, no. <laughs> no. Uh, what, no. What is a... a Fine dining restaurant faux pas. What's something that people do in restaurants that really shouldn't be done? You know, here, this, from a kitchen standpoint, forget about fine dining. We try to time food so the apps go out and 10 minutes after the apps are cleared, your entree is coming down. If you're sitting at your table, the best time to get up and use the restroom is as soon as those appetizers are cleared. If you sit there for eight, nine minutes and then decide to get up, because we don't typically put food down on a table in front of you if you're up at the bed, we'll wait and we'll hold it back because we don't want to sit there and get cold. And so don't wait 10 minutes when you're sitting there to go to the restroom. Go there as soon as your appetizer is cleared so you can get back in time for that dish. <laughs> That's a pet peeve of mine. It's like, yeah. why, wait? why are you waiting so long? 
what meal should someone at home be able to cook? Like everybody should know how to make one thing. Ina Gardenway says roast chicken. She makes that for Jeffrey. Yeah, yeah, roast chicken should be one of those things. It's it's really simple. And um, you know, I, listen, I'm, I actually think cooking is pretty easy. I, and the stuff I do at home is very simple. It's not what I do in the restaurant. Um, although I'll make a if I'm having a dinner party, it's it's a simple dish, but then I'm making a bunch of sides. But even then, cook simply. Learn how to cook a few things. But cooking, it, it's to me, it's not hard. It never has been. But the only way to get better at it is to cook. You know, it's, it's not some magic thing where you open a cookbook and it's like, oh, this is a great recipe. I'm going to cook this and that makes you a better cook. No. The only way to be a better cook is to cook. And ultimately, the best, the, 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 what I would suggest that every home cook aspire to is to cook without recipes. Learn some basics. I mean, what, the book that really changed my life when I was about 15, my dad brought home a book called La Technique by Jacques from Hen. And Jacques um, and Jacques' book, La Technique, stressed that you learn, you need to learn techniques and methods to cook, not recipes. And I can equate that to, to playing music. I play guitar, and I don't know theory well at all. Um, I know a bunch of chords, and I know some 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 uh, scales and stuff. And But... I don't know music. I could play songs. I could do my recipe. But if I sat in with a band and they said, you know, we're playing a song, it's in G and uh, it's a one, four, five and blah, blah, blah. I know what they mean. It takes me a long time to figure that out. You know, I, I can't play modes and I can't play, you know, but I'm okay. But the same thing as a cook. If you just always rely on that recipe, you're just following the recipe. You're not learning how to cook. Learn how to cook a green vegetable. Learn how to roast something. If you could roast a chicken, you could roast a leg of lamb. Same thing. There's no difference. If you could braise a shoulder of the uh, shoulder of lamb, you can braise a rabbit leg. It's the same thing, you know. It's and so learn the basics, and then make them your own, and then just go shop and or go to a farm stand and buy a few things and go home and cook them. So to me, that's that's what being, you know, a cook is all about. It's it's just understanding that there's technique and methods, and if you should learn them, and then from there you do your thing. Right. What would listeners be surprised to hear you eat? Like easy cheese? Do you like frozen bagels? Pineapple on pizza? No to all three. Uh, only because my feeling is, if I'm going to eat cheese, like I'll eat cheese, like good cheese. There's there's it doesn't take any more effort to get good cheese and like a some dairy non-dairy processed crap um pineapple on pizza is just an atrocity it should never happen um it's like it's, it's, a, it's such a bad idea what about in australia um, they put pineapple on their burgers yeah whatever that's uh, whatever they're upside okay. down um no you know um i'm not a burger guy i don't i don't i don't do a lot of burgers i don't I don't eat a lot of burgers. I'm not, I'm not a big fan. Um, surprised at what I eat. Um, um, I do have a sweet tooth, so hard candy. Licorice is my favorite. You know, I just, just love loving licorice, salted licorice. Oh, Absolutely the, love it. The Swedish licorice cars or tires, the salted, yeah. The Dutch, the Dutch salted, salted licorice, yeah. And it's, the double salt is even it's great. The triple salt I can't do. The double salt's awesome. Uh, what is the best town for fishing and eating? 
Oh, God. Oh, Key, Key West, I think. You know, there are good restaurants in Key West, and I've always found the fishing there to be amazing, whether you're fishing. It's my dog barking in the background. Um, whether you're fishing for uh, uh, tarpon, permit, bonefish, if you're fishing offshore for sailfish or tuna, um, I, I just find it's a great, a great place to fish. There's, always, there's also amazing guides who fish in Key West, um, and there are good restaurants in Key West. So that's, that's one of my favorites. Awesome. And last of the cookie questions before Top Chef, what are you most excited to harvest from your garden this summer? Um, I'm looking forward to the first ripe tomato. It's not happened yet. We um, got three Cherokee purples today. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. cool. Well, you're a little further south. Yeah. yeah I'm not there yet. Um, you know, I, I always look forward to the first eggplant. Um, that's that's kind of then Ratatouille starts from there and um, we also do this eggplant dish that I started doing a couple of years back that um, uh, I do it on a griddle and uh, you slice the eggplant, a lot of oil, a lot of olive oil, um, and you slice rounds, you, you kind of brown them on both sides. And then when they're, when they're brown and start to soften up, I add a bunch of scallions and garlic. Calabrian chili, or if I have uh, chilies in the garden, I'll just slice up you know, jalapenos, add that. And then cilantro, Thai basil, basil, parsley, mint, and let that all cook together. And then I take it off the, the griddle, put it into a bowl, a little bit of fish sauce, some lime juice, and then all those herbs fresh again, another handful, and kind of toss that all together. And soy sauce, and it's just become like an absolute favorite of the family's. My neighbor it's, just bought uh, a gas griddle, so I think we'll have to do that. It, it works. I mean, you can do it in a saute pan, but it just works. I just it, it, because I make when I make it, I make uh, making a lot of it, and so I can I can pretty much get one batch done on a griddle as opposed to like double batching, like you know, in, in saute pans. Okay. So, but it's 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 just great, and you can you know make it as spicy as you want, and um, but it's it's good to get the funk from the from the fish sauce. This is, again, I look at this, that dish is very Asian. Um, it's something I love doing. But the technique is really just, it's, it's sautéing, uh, you know, kind of pan, pan, pan roasting. So it's really just technique. And so um, it wasn't a recipe. It wasn't even, it was just something that one day I said, you know what it was? It was my friend of ours, um, um, she was actually a sitter for a while. She's become a good family friend. Um, she, um, loved spicy food and loved eggplant. And so I made it for her and it just became an absolute favorite. And it was all summer long. I, I, this was going back about six years ago. It's like at least once a week we we're eating it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that first eggplant so I can make it. This is the first year we're growing eggplants. So we'll have to use ours for that. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's good. I got, I got about six varieties of eggplant growing right now. Nice. Um, but yeah, the, the garden's doing well. We got so much rain early, early in the year. Um, except the, except the, you know, it really, the garden's kind of going, going nuts, but, uh, yeah. So I'm looking, looking forward to it. In fact, I got a, at least an hour to spend after, after this podcast. Okay. I'll be out there pulling weeds today myself. Yeah. The weed, the weed things that kills you, man. All right. <laughs> like never ending. So top chef, um, and our friend, I'm gonna give her a shout out. Uh, her call signs Thumper, Air Force friend. She said she married a bald man because of you. 
awesome. She <laughs> she found out I was going to interview you, and she wanted to be here, but they just moved to Texas. Uh, but she wanted me to make sure you knew that. Shout out to Thumper. Yeah. All right. So uh, how has the evolution of TV and technology, if at all, changed the show? Going from SD to HD now, and it's so vibrant and clear what you're seeing. Yeah. You know, I, I that's like – I'm not a tech guy, and I know the producers, um, they really geek out over this stuff. And, and it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, I think it has changed, um, um, but I, I, I couldn't tell you how. I know, um, you know, the one thing that changed the show was Last Chance Kitchen, and that was, that was because of transmedia. That was because they, they wanted to get more oddballs to, to, to digital, to their digital platform. So that, that, and that really transformed the show, I think, um, the chefs take more, more they can take more risks because they know they have a, a, a you know, sort of a safety net they can get back in. And in fact, I think we've had three, three winners that, that came through last chance kitchen. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think, I think that's changed quite a bit. Any reason you started off wearing a blue chef coat in the earlier seasons? No, the producers just, for some reason, they didn't want me white. They were like, can you wear blue? And I was like, yeah, whatever. I, and I really, didn't want to do it and finally i put my foot down it's like i'm not wearing this damn blue chef's coat anymore <laughs> but yeah i yeah. don't know and so you have no rapport with the chefs other than when they're in the kitchen correct so you don't see them um, you only see them when you're when they're cooking um that that's that's correct i see them when i do my walkthrough um we see them when we eat we see them at judges table and I see them at Last Chance Kitchen. That's it. We have no interaction off camera with them at all. How do you learn all their there's names? Sequester- there's a question. What we do, it's tough because I'm terrible with names. Um, uh, I get, we get a, a cheat sheet of photos and names. Uh, and just first names. And um, we study it. And it usually takes about, two to three episodes to get really comfortable. Um, but I'll sit there with, with the cheat sheet under judge's table and just kind of like, you know, if I'm going to address something, I'll take a look. And but we, we, actually, actually, we have to work at it to get it down. No, the, the, the chefs are sequestered. Um, they're not allowed to leave their house unless they're cooking for the show. They're not allowed TV. They're not allowed radio. They're not allowed phones. That sounds money. great. Well, nothing. They're, they're not about books, magazines, cookbooks, nothing. Partly it, it forces them to interact with each other. Um, so we, we have no, and all that stuff that goes on behind the scenes, we have no idea it's happening, nor do we care it's happening. When Marcel's so getting when angry I get, people. Didn't you see when so-so did X, Y, and Z? It's like, no, I didn't see it because why would I? Marcel, that was a different thing. The haircutting incident was different. That if I I remember that for a lot of reasons. Number one, it was my birthday, and I was out that night with a bunch of friends. Um, I was we were in L.A., and um, I get a phone call and like Tom, can you get to our offices? We were shooting in L.A. and the production company they're based in L.A. And I was like, no, we're actually having dinner right now. So can you So what's going on? And they told me I was like, oh, oh my god, this is outrageous. Let me finish up dinner and I'll get there. And they showed me footage, and. There was a whole. I mean, it was it, it became a problem because the question was 
you know, there was a, f- a physical alteration. Someone had to go. Then it became there is are there legal, you know, what's going on legally, and and there, it just became a real problem. And in fact, we we didn't shoot the following day because we had to straighten it out. And so that was the only time that someone got thrown off the show, where the producers actually said someone has to go. Um, that it didn't happen through the process of cooking. But uh, yeah, that was the only time. I, I, otherwise, we don't care. Um, you know, uh, it, it's for us. It, it, it works for us because we focus on the food and the food only, and that's it. Um, and you know, I know it's frustrating for a lot of viewers, but you could be great. You could win four or five in a row. If you make the worst dish, you're gone. And we just decided to do that from day one, and that's how we judge it. Keeps me entertained. Yeah. Uh, when chefs draw knives, are they sharpened or are they dull? I don't know. I think they're pretty sharp. <laughs> I always seem to pull them out, and I'm like, oh, someone's going to get cut. No, they're careful. I think they're pretty careful with how they do it. Do you notice that some seasons will have a theme where Denver was all pasta? I think it was Boston was all dashis. It does happen. I, I have noticed that. We all notice that. Yeah. And I think what happens is some will make a dish and we'll praise it. And they think, okay, I'll make that too. And also what happens, and I don't know if the viewers see this as much as we do. Halfway through the season, all the food starts to look the same too. There's, they, they, they're all collectively working. All of a sudden presentation starts to look the same. And it just, sometimes it gets weird. It's like, you know, we'll, we'll say things like this. There's, there's, Six to seven cameras shooting 16 hours a day. It takes two days to shoot an episode. You see 48 minutes of that. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages. Things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. So there's a lot of stuff that we say that never makes the cut. And we'll say stuff like, guys, this is all starting to look the same. It'll never make the cut, but it's just, so again, because, because we, we're not allowed to talk to the chefs, there are times that I will just drop stuff that at judges' table that... I'm trying to push them in a direction. I'm trying to get them to see something. I'm trying to get them to, you know, um, sort of break out of their comfort zone, whatever. I'm, so I'm delivering message to them all the time, which I'm allowed to do. I can't tell them what to do, but I can question them. And so we'll do that. And a lot of times it'll never make the cut, but they'll, they'll, they'll get the message. So I could say, you know, something like, this is all starting to look the same. You know, are you guys looking at each other like what are you doing so it's a question and it'll get them thinking and and so but again if it doesn't if it's not germane to a storyline that the producers are trying to put out there you'll never hear it okay do you have a favorite local sourced food for location like that when you were in a certain location was one thing just more prevalent that you, know, you really enjoyed pacific north no, versus no yeah, I mean, there were some shellfish and stuff in Pacific Northwest that was really cool. Macau was great because there was a lot of fermented, wacky stuff that they would find in the markets that I thought they did a great job using. Um, uh, when we were in um, Singapore, there was a lot of great product. My wife well, loves so, going to Singapore. Um, Singapore's great. 
Right. So all she talks it's... about is spicy crab and the lot. No, no, the chili, the chili, chili crab. crab. Is the best. It's amazing. Chili yeah. crab's amazing. She drinks best the gronies and eats chili crab. That's a good thing. I like that. Yeah. Have there been any technical accidents, like a microphone or a light fixture falling in a mulligatani that didn't make it on? Well, God, the second season, the first season, first season, I think it was. We were shooting in San Francisco, and we were shooting um, this Dawn of the Dead, not Dawn of the Dead, uh, um, uh, God, it was the holiday. We were in a community center that was all decorated, and it was all um, kind of Mexican, um, these paper cutouts, and uh, it was for Cinco de Mayo, and it was, it was just, just great. And we had this, you know, we're shooting, and it was, I forget exactly you know what what the challenge was and all but we were we were spending like we said three hours one of the guys did not have a cartridge in his camera there was no film and the camera wasn't film but it was the digital cartridge wasn't in his camera we had to reshoot the entire thing guy was gone the next day <laughs> he just disappeared that was wow <laughs> yeah do you have a favorite location that You've been able to fish, I'm assuming Denver, and I know there was an article, I think in Vanity Fair, about, I'm blanking on her name, your other co-judge. Pardon? No. Uh, Gail? Gail Simmons. She's also an angler. There was, I think it was Vanity Fair had an article about Gail Simmons fishing while she was there. Yeah, I don't know if she's an angler. Um, she, she did go out fishing. <laughs> <laughs> Gail's a lot of things. I don't think she's an angler. Um, I took Gail fishing... Um, uh, in Alaska, when we were shooting up there, it was, uh, actually, it's a crazy story. It was me, Emerald, Gal, and Hugh, and we were on a seaplane. We are about to take off, and we were going to go to this island and fish for salmon. And the guy gets the plane started, and, and he's ready to untie it, and he stops. Shuts down. was like, what's going on? He goes, the plane just took off in front of us? Yeah. It just flew into the mountain. <gasps> So there's a lot of fog up there. We're not going up there. It's like great. So we ended up going to a river and fishing for brook trout. Um, uh, but uh, Denver was great. Yeah, I, I got you know I don't I don't trout fish as much as I used to, and uh, so Denver was great because I you know I work um, one day on two days off, so I I spent a lot of time trout fishing. Um, so yes, yeah, so that worked. That worked out really nicely. Um, South Carolina, I got out and fished uh, quite a bit. Um, um, I got some bone fishing in when we were in Mexico, shooting finale. Um, Pacific Northwest, I didn't fish, and I, I really regret regret that. I just I didn't I didn't get my act together, and that was one of the few locations where I didn't get to come home. So when I was in Denver. I got there and I was like, I didn't know if it was going to be, you know, how runoff was at all. And when I realized it was going to be good, I went out to the guide out and I ended up going home, grabbing all my stuff and bringing it back. Um, but Pacific Northwest, once I was there, I didn't come home. And uh, so I didn't get to fish in that location. Um, yeah. Additionally with Denver, I know there's issues baking and cooking in altitude. Did you notice that food didn't taste as good? You couldn't... Um... Your, your sense of taste and smell was off? No, no. We weren't that high. I mean, we were, we were in, in Telluride, we were up pretty high, but for the most part, you know, Denver's not, not that high up. No. I, I, didn't, I didn't see that. Can you 
give us a, l- a little story about Padma that we wouldn't know? Something that uh, Bart Vandelay would not have told me when we were having drinks a couple weeks ago? <laughs> no, I, I don't have stories. I mean, she's, you know, she's got the hardest job out of all of us, you know, because she does the quick fires and she does the elimination. So she's actually working a lot and she's got to get up, you know, if, if we have to shoot at 11 o'clock, she's got to get up you know, two hours more before, you know, before I do to get hair and makeup done. Um, no, but so, I mean, she, you know, her and I have a good relationship and, and, um, when I'm loving these days is how political she's gotten. Uh, she, she's, she's, she's awesome. Her Twitter game and her Instagram game has just been great. And, uh, um, but, uh, no, 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 I, no, no, no real stories. I used to watch her on Chef Du Jour between classes in college. And Marcus Samuelson was one of the chefs on there as well. I have no idea what you're talking about. They, it was a cooking <laughs> show around 10 o'clock on the Food Network in the early 90s. And every day it was just a different chef would come in and do a 30-minute uh, episode. And it would be her on maybe a Monday, Marcus Samuelson on Tuesday. Just other chefs who are now very popular and well-known, but they were just getting sort of started in TV back then. So I've known Padma for years now on TV. <laughs> I never saw that show. Um, she might not want you to at this point, yeah. probably. <laughs> uh, what are characteristics that make a good contestant? Um, well, I think, I think when you say contestant, I mean, I, I, competitor, competitor, I I think certain people just, just like to compete. Um, I mean, obviously you have to have chops. I mean, you have to have experience to, to, to get, you know, pretty far along on the show. Um, a lot of the younger chefs who don't have the years of experience, they don't get too far. In fact, early, you know, our first season, we had some home cooks on and that didn't work out really well. And I remember like third season, they said, Oh, the Connor Institute, they gave us their best student and this guy's going to be great. First one to go. Um, you, you need, you know, because everything is done in real time. If you, if we say you have an hour to cook, you have an hour to cook. Um, when you're doing some of these big parties that we do, when you have 200 people showing up at a black party and you're, and you're doing it by yourself, that's hard. And you, you know, the, the process by which, you know, again, if we give you a challenge, you have an hour to cook. The process of just making those decisions as to what you're going to make, how you're going to make it, how you're going to present it, that all happens very, very quickly. And if you don't have years and years under your belt, it's not going to come to you that, that way. You'll struggle with it. And so I think that's it. It's a combination of experience and, and chops and, you know, thinking quickly, and but also wanting to compete. Um, uh, I think, I think, uh, uh, those attributes are sort of, are would definitely be helpful. And don't buy pre-made bread rolls and tortillas. Um, that's always seems to be a big gamble. Well, yes and no. Um, there was a, a lot to do this past season about sending someone home for using waffle. A, waffle a, a, yeah. It was a, a mix. They still made the waffles, but it was a mix. And that was one problem with the dish. Now, if you use a mix 
For instance, Eric, his fufu, was a mix. But it was damn good. The mix itself, the fufu itself was, wasn't the thing. His stew that he made with the fufu was, was dynamite. It was delicious. It was great. So it never became an issue. But the chicken wasn't that good with the waffle. So now the waffle mix became a problem, too. But she didn't go home. There was a worse dish. And so it's a factor. But it's not like a, a rule that if you use a box mix, you're going home. That's, there's no rules. We don't have rules like that. If we had a rule like that, they would know. In fact, you know, the one thing, and you don't see it as much anymore, but the chefs used to, you know, get a judge's table. They would say, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't understand the challenge. That's a lot of nonsense. I'll tell you why. The one thing that we do is we give the challenge to the chefs and, you know, Palmer says your time starts now and they run, right? We stop them. You know, we let them kind of run, get to a certain point. We tell them to stop. Camera stop. We get them all together and the producers sit with them and go through a, the actual challenge. Not what Padma tells them, but the actual challenge. What it is, what you can use, what you can't use, and they go through it, and they all have to sign if they understood it. And then we get them together and say, go. This happens, it takes about 10 minutes. But they understand the challenge. If for some reason they weren't allowed to use a box mix, they would be told you can't use a mix. And so we can't ding them for something that they were able to do. So, so here's, here's the dilemma. Let's just say they had to make cakes. I'll just use that as an example. We, we would never do a challenge where we say, make a cake. That's not that interesting. But let's just say they had to make cakes. Let's just say there are two teams, and they had to make a dinner, and part of that was to make a cake. And one team used a box mix, and the other team made it from scratch. And let's just say the box mix was good, but it was still a box mix. And let's just say the one that did it from scratch was horrible. That's a dilemma. Most likely, the box mix would win <laughs> because it was good, even though it was a box mix. And most likely, that chef would probably say, oh, I doctored that box mix up. I did X, Y, and Z. But if, the, if, if someone made it from scratch and it was god-awful, why would that win? The food that better is going to win. And so unless they were told, you cannot use a box. And they did. I would say eh, that's not a, not a dumb thing. So, so there's, no, there's, no, there's, no, there's no rules. There's no rules around what we do and what we don't do. Um, you know, I remember Kwame went home. He used Legos. That was a pretty bad move. I mean, that was terrible. <laughs> um, um, also, they were dried out the way he kept them and held them. So, no, you know. Again, it all comes down to, and it is subjective, it all comes down to what we think is the best dish, what we think is the worst dish. That's it. Do you have a scoring card to help you decide all this no. like under the table? No. no, 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 no. There's no scoring card, no. We eat the food. We all have a pretty good memory for the food that we're, that, that is in front of us at the time. We're eating it. We don't make notes. We don't take notes. The producers take notes. So if ever we say, oh, God, what was, you know, was there something in that dish that I'm forgetting something? And they'll say, oh, yeah, here's the dish. And so there's always a reference there. But, no, we don't take notes. There's no scoring system. Um, there was one time that we, we judges, again, not, not the producers, but the judges decided to maybe try to come up with the scoring system because we, we couldn't choose a winner. And this was in the finale. And we devised one. 
we didn't we didn't necessarily use it, but we still devised it just to see if if we could figure out a different way to come up with a, a, a an outcome. Um, that was the season that Nick Elmy um, won, um, and he beat out Nina, um, which was really controversial. But uh, you know, it was controversial because Nick yelled at a waiter in the kitchen. It's like like I care. I mean, yes, I care that he's yelling at a waiter in the kitchen, but I can't factor that into the outcome of of, of the finale. I got it's only it's only based on food. It's not based on whether or not he yelled at someone in the kitchen. And so it's like, didn't you see that? Well, number one, I didn't see it, but number two, it it wouldn't have mattered. And so anyway, no, we don't we don't use a scoring system. What we do is we sit there and discuss it. Often we all come to the, and we try not to discuss it off camera because we feel if we if we if we have a conversation off camera when we get on camera, it's going to feel a little dead. And so our, we, we, we decide that we're going to go there, and I know who I think should win, who should lose. I think I, you know, I know who's kind of the second. Sometimes it might be really close between two people. We just discuss it. We talk it out, and we try to come to a consensus. There are a lot of times we'll go there, and all four of us will go, this one's going, this one's going. And, and, but it would be pretty boring if we all just said, this one's going home, and, and the conversation. Sometimes we know. We know. And there's nothing, almost nothing, that the contestant can tell us that will change our minds. You know, unless in challenges something happened that we don't know to do, we're not watching them, and they bring it up. You know, as, if we if we can, the team challenges are difficult because we try to figure out like what which which is the weakest part of it and who's responsible for it, and getting that responsibility thing down sometimes is difficult. Um, but. Often we, we, we it's unanimous. We can we can wrap this up in two minutes, but that would make for a boring show. So we got to talk it out. Do, um, do you believe there's ever been intentional sabotage? There was like a turning down a burner, a pee puree. Yeah, the pee puree was nothing. The pee puree. I, I, I've been. I, I, I've said this before. That was a a line, a, a storyline that should have never been followed because it was never it was never resolved. And I don't believe you should actually start a storyline if it wasn't resolved. And I think that the longer and short of it was, both people made purees. One person left it behind in the kitchen. Right. No one stole that pea puree. He made it. What about chicken it, oysters? The, uh, it, like Isabella may have taken it from Richard. I, I don't know. I have no idea. No idea. Again, I, I, it's like that's not what we, we judge on. If, and, and I like that your show isn't a reality show based on drama and cliffhangers and like a lot of the vapid TV shows that are out there that it's not like a pee puree. Was yeah, stolen. We, don't fab- do, do, do. we don't, we don't fabricate the drama. The drama happens naturally. It happens because people are working their asses off and, and they're, 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 you know, giving it their all and they're sweating over everything they do. And you see the decision, you see the process. That's what makes it interesting. Not whether or not someone stole pee puree. Uh, the poor guy, his entire cooking career, he's known as the guy who stole the pea puree, and he didn't steal pea puree. And do you still keep in touch with some of the chefs? No, not really. I mean, occasionally I'll see I'll see some of the chefs. Um, uh, Harold from season one, and I, I, I keep in touch with him only because he, we fish together sometimes. Um, but uh, no, I, I I don't. I mean, I'll see them at events and uh, uh, you know, sort of out there if you're doing a. a festival or something but other than that no have there been any guest judges that you've been starstruck to meet um 
No, because I, I think I met them all before. I mean, people like, you know, non, non-chefs like Natalie Portman and Charlize Theron I knew before the show. Um, they were fans, and I met, I met them both uh, um, uh, in L.A. at uh, events. But, um, but uh, uh, I'm trying to think. I don't, I don't No, not really starstruck, no. Okay. No. Um, let's get to some fishing now. I think that's enough Top Chef questions. Anything I didn't ask? That Are there FAQs you always get? Did I? Yeah. I think you covered it. Right. Uh, so why fly fishing? Oh, okay. So I started fishing you know, again when I was about five. And then for, for a little bit, I didn't, I didn't fish much. Uh, it was a couple of years I didn't fish. And then I started trout fishing. Um, spinning rod. Um, and... I had some friends who, who I, I knew who were also fishing, and they were fishing fly rods, and we would go together. And then my partner um, in my restaurant, uh, a guy named Bob Scott, was a, a big fly fisherman, um, you know, travels the world fishing. And I was at his house, and he was, uh, I said, you know, you fly fishing? Yeah. So why don't you show me how to do that? And so we cast it on, the, on, the, on, on this lawn, and I went out with a fly rod, and that was it. I was, I was hooked. And I became a fly fishing snob. That's all I. That's all I would do. I wouldn't touch a spinning reel, <laughs> or troll, or anything like that. And and I fished trout um, predominantly until I took my first bonefish trip, and then I was absolutely hooked. Saltwater um, is it for you? That's your thing. Well, I you know I grew up in saltwater. It's my thing. And once I caught my first bonefish, that was it. Then it was just bonefish, and then tarpon and permit. It's it's like a whole nother thing. Our permit and really is awful as a chase, as everyone says. They're hard. But if you want to catch permit, you have to fish for permit. Go with a good guide, be able to cast, be able to deal with winds and stuff like that, and you'll catch a permit. But you can't, you can't fish for bonefish and a permit happens to swim by and you go, oh, let me get that. No, it doesn't work that way. You've got to be in water where you find permit. You need shots. And, you know, if you're fishing Key West in July you're going to get, you know, 15, 20 shots a day. And if you hook one fish, that's good. Um, you know what they say, you know, the, only, the only way you catch two is you got to catch one first. <laughs> and so, and so I, I, yeah, it's maddening. It's crazy because this, you know, the thing with, with, with permit, they're, they're so spooky once they're on the flat. And yet the only way to, to, to get them to eat that crab is to get that crab so close to them that it scares them. But they think it's a crab. If they actually tip up on it and they start following it, they'll never eat it. But if if you get it right on their nose, they just think that they, they happen to swim by a crab that's diving to the bottom and they just react. And that's when you usually hook them. Um, but they're 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 tough. They're they're really tough. How often do um, you tarpon? Do, go on. So tarpon, tarpon, big tarpon, tarpon will, a big tarpon will teach you how to fight a fish. Um, I remember the first one I caught, I, I fished with a guy named Simon Becker who was as good as they get in Key West. And uh, the first tarpon, it was probably about 80 pounds, and it took me forever to land this fish. So we're done, land a fish, high fives around, and he goes to me, all right. And he said, how much pressure do you think you're ever putting on that fish? And I'm like, oh, I'm fishing with 16-pound tippet, I don't know, 14 pounds? He said, not even close. He said, maybe four pounds. I was like, come on, no way. He said, yeah, let me show you. So cuts the fly off, off the fly line, puts it on a scale. He said, pull back. 
and I started pulling. And he goes, okay, four pounds. And as my rod starts to go up, he goes, now three pounds, now two pounds. I'm like, wait, I'm pulling higher. Why am I decreasing pressure? He said, exactly. He said, once you get past 45 degrees, he said, now the rod is loading further up the rod. So it's actually bending and it's taking the pressure off. That's how the rod works. you got to only lift it to 45 degrees and get that fight towards the butt of the rod. So, and once you do that, he said, you'll whip this fish in 15 minutes. And so then he showed me, he said, let me do that. And he started pulling on it. And I, you know, you know, got it to six pounds, seven pounds, which is about all you're really going to do with a fly rod unless you're fishing, you know, 14 weight or something. And next fish, 10 minutes wow. in the boat. And that's what a good guide is for, is to explain that, those things. That's what a good guide is for. Yeah. It's not just the catch. I mean, you know, he's a good guy because he catches fish. He's also, you know, he's, he's one of these guys knows the tide, knows the time of day, and has a game plan before he gets in the boat. He's not kind of wandering out like I do, looking for fish. He knows this is the tide, this is where I'm going, this is where the fish will be, if I'm fishing tarpon, okay? Then, when the tide, a little later in the tide, this is where I have to be. When the tide turns, this is where I have to be. He's got that all planned out before he gets in the boat. That's, that's a good guide. Absolutely. Yeah. What is your home fly shop? Uh, Urban Angler. Uh, John Fisher over there does yeah. a great job. And Go see Dennis on the weekends. It's in New York City. Yeah, yeah. Um, Dennis but, likes to uh, eat, too. They all eat over there. But, yeah, that's, I've, I've been going there for 30-plus oh, years. Wow. Do you have any bucket list destinations that have not been knocked off yet? Either Absolutely. The yeah. Seychelles. That's a plane ride. Yeah, the Seychelles, uh, Giant Trevally. Uh, I mean, listen, you go there, you can get bonefish, you get milkfish, you get a permit, um, Giant Trevally. You can cast a fly line off the edge of the flat and catch tuna because it just drops off. Um, that That's the bucket list. I mean, that's that's where, yeah. You got to try and, and have a finale in Dubai so you're closer over? That that would be good. That would work. Yeah. That, that would work. But that's that's the bucket list. Yeah, that's going to be. Uh, I'm 56 now, 60th birthday. I think that's 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 the plan. Do you have a favorite species in the salt uh, at home to target? You said like um, the tuna. You got stripers, blues. Yeah, I, I, I mean tuna is a crap a crapshoot on fly. Um, what I'd love to get on a fly out here is is white marlin. Um, we're seeing more and more of them, but it's like the target down the fly. It's it's a. I think there's a lot of misses before you catch one. You catch one. Um, I've caught tuna on a fly. Um, of course, you know, of course, when false albacore are in, uh, that's a, that's a blast in Benito. Big striper on a fly is always fun on the flats, sight fishing. Um, so no, I mean, you know, I caught straight marlin on a fly. I've never caught a blue marlin on a fly. I caught sailfish on a fly. Um, so a, a blue marlin would be, would be, would be cool, but I don't know if I target them here. What's your favorite season? In New York to fish. Uh, good question. It's got to be fall. With all the warm waters real close in. With well, all the fish. That, well, there's that, and also you got false albacore, and the stripers are getting ready to to, to do their thing. Um, plus, there's still warm water offshore. Um, uh, so yeah, it's September's usually the best. Have you ever seen anything just absolutely crazy offshore? Well, what most people don't know, um, 
you know, if you go right now along the beach, there's a ton of, of uh, Manhattan um, bunker. There's tons of it. And so there's whales close in. But 30 miles off the coast, you hit some of the wrecks, especially this time of the year when there's a lot of sand deals out there. There are more whales and dolphin than, you know, any aquarium. A 30-mile boat ride, and it is just, it's amazing. Everywhere you look, there are dolphins, there, there, are, there are whales breaching, um, and usually we get pirate whales, finbacks, and humpbacks, and watching a humpback, you know, 10 feet from your boat breaching is is pretty cool. <laughs> um, you know, and, and that's all here in New York, which is it's kind of neat. But they're starting to come in close and go up the Hudson now. Yeah, occasionally you'll get them, you know, they'll, they'll kind of get lost and end up in the Hudson, but... Right now, they're 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 a mile off the beach because of all these these this bunker that's out there. Yeah, we don't have those schools. They're all gone down here. They've been all taken. Yeah, so, now the bunker schools up here because there's fewer striped bass right now, so the bunker schools are just just monstrous right now. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. So you you also tie flies. Do you ever have comparisons between tying flies and cooking? Yeah, yeah. In, in a way, um, what's kind of neat is if you look at the materials like ingredients, and again, once you learn techniques, then you just tie. And when I tie trout, there's very specific patterns that you tie to match the hatch and stuff like that. Um, but even then, I'd get creative. But tying saltwater flies, it's, it's very easy to get creative. Um, but again, the materials are, the, are the, the ingredients. The techniques are techniques that you learn when you tie. And then you just kind of you know, have fun with it and tie and come up with different things. If you had a superhero power to make you a better angler, what would you choose? Oh God. <laughs> I guess Aquaman would be really cool. Cause you just dive right in there <laughs> and just find the fish. You're like built, you have built in sonar. It's that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I guess that would do it. <laughs> do you have any superstitions when it comes to a fishing trip? Well, the banana on a boat thing, I'm not that superstitious about it. You want to bring a banana on my boat, fine. I really don't care. Um, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, no, I'm not a superstitious kind of guy. Um, so, there's, nah, it's, nah, I don't, I don't, I know. A lot of fishermen are superstitious, I'm not. As a minimalist angler, what item would freak you out if you left behind? When you got to your destination, sunglasses. Do you have a brand preference? Uh, no, I mean I, I, uh, I have a lot of Costas. I have some Maui Gems. I have you know. Um, I used to use Revos. I, I haven't used I haven't a pair of those in ages. But uh, yeah, Costas are good. Like, it's how, you know, it's like if I if I got on my boat and I'm offshore and also like because you know, if I'm going offshore, I'm leaving at night, you know, three o'clock in the morning, so it's dark out. If I got out there and didn't have a pair of glasses, I would, that would that would really suck. Do you keep spare pairs on the boat? I usually don't. I, I guess I should. Yeah, it's probably wouldn't be a bad idea. Is there a fishing trip that you'd ever want to do over again? Because it was just awful, and you need a oh redo uh, awful. Yeah, yeah. My first bonefish trip. My first trip to Key West. I got down there, and it just rained for it stormed for three days. I had to turn around and come home. Never got in the boat. <laughs> so, I, so I did it again. <laughs> you must have just been hanging out at bars the whole time. It was, no, I actually, the guide said, listen, it's going to rain like this for the next three days. I just got on a plane and came home. I didn't wow. stay there. 
because like, I was by myself and I would have stayed in the bar for three days. I was like, I'm going home and stay in the bar for three days with friends. Yeah. Has getting older affected anything in fishing and anything you would tell yeah. a younger you about getting older? But it affects the recovery time. If I go offshore, I'm, I'm like wiped out the next day and it just, my body hurts. It's, it's, uh, you know, the last trip, I ran a total of about a hundred miles because so I started in New Jersey, went out to a wreck called the princess wreck. That's about 46 miles offshore. And then from there I had to end up in long Island. So from there I went to another wreck called the Cumbra. Um, that was 30 miles from the, from the princess and then another 30 miles to the, um, inlet to get home. So there was a lot of time on the water, and the following day I was, I was just just wrecked <laughs> how do you, for, for two days. How do you protect yourself from the sun when you're on the boat? I wear a long sleeve shirt. I wear uh, you know a neck guard and a hat. Um, I don't love sunscreen, um, but I, I do use it. But you know I just try to cover up the best like as best I can. That's my I usually point. have a, a a light fishing shirt with a hood too. If I have to throw you know put the hood up. Um, but yeah, I, I just try to keep covered. Do you have a favorite fly fishing author? Um, R- Russell Chatham. Um, I don't know if you know Russell. Russell's an artist. He died a couple years back. He was a great artist, a landscape artist, um, but also wrote um, on fishing and, and food as well. Um, um, also, um, Oh, Jim, Jim Harrison mm-hmm. um, also wrote food and, and, and fishing as well. Um, he was also a, a novelist and just a great American novelist who died a couple of years back as well. Um, but uh, yeah, those are my two favorites. If there is a famous angler from days past that you could have fished with, or if you could go back in time, is there someone you'd want to fish with? Yeah, you know, even though I, I hear he was a real bastard, but anyway, would have been just awesome to go out and fish with. <laughs> I mean, you know, sort of the early offshore stuff, uh, either that or like Zane Gray, some of that early offshore stuff that he was doing. These guys are real pioneers. Those were some tough um, but, dudes back in the day. Yeah, but Hemingway, that would have been, that would have been pretty cool to, to, you know, fish and run around Key West with him. There's a rumor that he may have fished my great aunt's backyard growing up in Jamaica. Oh, really? Oh, cool. That's just like a family rumor. You know, can't really. Right. But yeah, she may have met him once. Got it. Also, if you had a time machine to go back in time to fish somewhere where humans hadn't ruined that environment, where would you want to go? Where right I am. I would have loved to have been fishing um, sort of this, this area around Montauk, Long Island, back in the, in the 40s, 30s, and 40s. Um, there's a. You know, there were stories of, of you know tuna all over the surface and swordfish not that far off, um, off off the you know you didn't have to go that far out for the stuff. So, yeah, back then I think right here would have been really cool. That kind of sums up some of my fishing questions. Would you be able to to leave us with a story about Anthony Bourdain? That's not too much to ask. You know, I you know I, I obviously I knew Anthony and. I didn't know him well. I didn't know him as well as, as Eric Repair did. And, and, you know, Tony was a little funny because Tony, um, and I say this with all, all respect for him, he, he was a, 
sort of a second-rate Jeff um, and admits this and talks about it. He was a tremendous writer. And, and later on, after writing, he, he was, I, I just think, really understood the human condition and was able to use food to sort of get in there and really talk about and, 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 and hang out with people and sort of get their stories. And, and, and he did it through food. Um, but, you know, so early on, Tony was always a little, you know, in, in his first book, Kitchen Confidential, after he talks about, you know, that opening scene was amazing. And when he was working up in uh, Provincetown and, and the wedding, and, and I think that's what kind of really set the tone. And then later on, he talks about kitchens and how bad they are in New York. And then there were two kitchens. He, he, he used examples of good kitchens and good chefs. Scott Bryan, who worked right across the street from me at Gramercy Tavern, and then he's mentioned me at Gramercy Tavern. Now, I hadn't met, I hadn't met him prior to this. Um, and, but when I did meet him, he was always a little funny around chefs I think he really respected because he had this kind of chip on his shoulder and didn't know how to sort of deal with me. Um, but uh, later on, I got to know him. And, you know, he was, there was no stories because, I mean, you know, I didn't, I didn't hang out and get drunk with him. And, you know, he's just, you know, just hung out and kind of shot the shit and talked about, um, you know, there was one, one, one thing that was interesting. And, and, and he, um, when I started working for MSNBC, I was there for, for two years and I was going to do a show. And um, when, when it announced that, what, you know, what I was going to do, and we never actually did the show, but um, the questions were, um, what do you think about Anthony Bourdain? And my answer was, it's really great. That, that he did what he's doing because that's the only reason I'm able to do this show. And at the time, this was before No Reservations, which was the second show, right? I believe so. Um, yeah, and so he, it, was, it was before he was doing a lot of the political stuff that he was doing, the geopolitical stuff that he, that he started to do. And one of the questions, one of these journalists asked me, like, what's going to be different about your show? And I said, well, I'm going to focus more on geopolitics and 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 blah, blah, blah. and the guy who and I forget who wrote, but he wrote it up as as, as as kind of a dig. And Anthony sent me a a through Twitter of this this gif of, of Fred, Fred, uh, Fredo from the from the um, Godfather. Uh, Godfather. <laughs> like when he kissed him, he said, I love, "I love you like a brother," meaning like I betrayed him and. I got him on the phone. I said, Anthony, come on. I said, this is ridiculous. I said, I didn't, number one, this was taken out of context, not what I said. And I said, here, I'm going to send you what another journalist said. And I actually praised Anthony saying, this is the reason I was able to do it because of what he's done. And he got back to me. He said, no problem. He said, we're all really um, tense around here right now because we're getting on a plane to go to Iran. <laughs> and, and that's our next show. So we're all kind of freaking out, but no, no problem. So, so um, you know, he, he, uh, he was, you know, Anthony was Anthony, and um, uh, he was a true cultural icon. Yeah, he was, and 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 you know, but again, I I knew him as a as a, a guy who banged around a bunch of kitchens in New York and was kind of out there. But with what Anthony was, he was smart as hell, and this is what why he was able to do what he did. He was just just really well versed in a lot of different things. He was a just a you know good guy. I was in France on the anniversary, and I know there was a lot of videos and stuff going on. I didn't, I didn't partake. I, I Bourdain day? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't do anything. I kind of remember him the way I remember. Now, again, I was in France. I was like, you know, not, not feeling it. You know, I'll, I'll just kind of 
do my own thing and and you know kind of keeping my memories the way I was going to keep them in my memories. And so, um, yeah, sucks. Well, Tom, thank you so much for taking time out sure. from especially fishing and your busy live. We appreciate all of the TV work and the, the humanitarian stuff you also do with some of your causes. Well, and my wife slipped me a note that she's excited for Mazadar Bakery opening up, if I pronounce yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, Mazadar, yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's very excited for good bread in D.C., which... Cool. Yeah, that's right. For opening in D.C., yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, awesome. When Have you already shot the latest season? No, we, we shoot in September. Are we allowed to know where? Uh, I don't know if it's out yet. I don't think okay. so. Yeah. Well, we will be looking forward to it, and I can't wait All to right. see it. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6'8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.